Sometimes I think as healthcare providers, we're too quick to be like, okay, I'm going to leave you to be alone right now. But I got feedback from a few people who said like, we actually needed our nurse or social worker or physician to stay there with us. My mom died and then everybody retreated. And so I really came to a place in my practice of asking people, would you like me to stay with you right now? Would you like to have some time alone and not making assumptions? Welcome to Radical Nurse Talk, a podcast that explores nurses' communication in serious situations and illness as a radical act of care. I'm your host, Patricia Dragon. How can we talk with children about hard stuff, losses that hurt, dying, death, and how can we respond to their grief? Do you worry about causing harm or making things worse? In this episode, Andrea Warnick invites us to confront our own fears about that, and in the process, inspires and supports us to step into the spaces where grief exists in our own lives and work with children and families. Today's guest is Andrea Warnick. She's a registered psychotherapist and registered nurse whose passion lies in helping individuals, families, and communities support people of all ages who are grieving an illness or death in their lives. With years of nursing and counseling experience both in Canada and abroad and a master's degree in thanatology, which is the study of dying and death, Andrea brings to her work a rare mixture of medical and psychosocial expertise. Andrea developed a Teaches the Five-Day Certificate Program in Children's Grief and Bereavement at SickKids Centre for Community Health and was also the content lead developer for KidsGrief.ca and Kids Grief for Educators. Once a month, Andrea hosts a free monthly forum through Canadian Virtual Hospice, Kids Grief Question and Answer, where she responds to questions from families and professionals from across the country about supporting grieving children and youth. Andrea lives in Guelph, Ontario, Canada, where she co-owns and runs Andrea Warnick Consulting, a group practice of 30 therapists who provide grief therapy across Ontario and grief education and consultation across Canada. So welcome, Andrea, and I first want to say thank you to you for all the work that you've done in this area and the resources that you have made available to the public at large. Um, It's just a great gift to all of us. And so hopefully after our conversation today, more people will actually know about them, uh, including nurses. So welcome. Uh, can Can you briefly describe the work that you do? Absolutely. So I'm a registered nurse and a registered psychotherapist. Um, and, and really, partially through personal reasons, but also through nursing, I became very passionate about making sure um, that people of all ages have access to well-informed grief support. And so I work as a grief therapist myself, um, and I work with a team. We've got a private practice of 40 grief therapists across Ontario, a couple in BC, um, and really spend our time doing that direct support with kids and adults who are either dying themselves or have had someone die in their life or have a serious illness, may not end up dying, but has big implications for their lives. And, And we spend a lot of time doing education as well and consulting with different organizations and everything to make sure that there's sort of a shared level of grief literacy uh, across organizations. 
explain what grief literacy is? Absolutely. I mean, for for me, there's a number of definitions out there, but it's really making sure that people um, have some knowledge as to like what actually helps when somebody's grieving and even just understanding as basic as what grief is and that, you know, it's not just when somebody dies. There's all kinds of losses, um, any significant loss, really. Um, and then and then some of the nitty gritty of the language around it, too. I spend even with kids, I'll talk about this concept of disenfranchised grief. It's grief that's not acknowledged or sometimes the griever isn't acknowledged. We just think the child is too young, so we don't tell them um, and they become disenfranchised. So part of it is really around the language piece that we use um, in talking about grief. Um, but there's also a big element of grief literacy about how do we support one another when somebody's grieving in a way that helps them integrate their grief in healthy ways. Because in my experience, Pat, there is no shortage of well-intended but incredibly misguided advice that tends to be given to people who are grieving. Oh, so I, I'd like to talk about that. To clarify, you've said grief uh, is about loss. So I guess the response to loss and that yeah. that loss doesn't necessarily mean death. Absolutely. So any significant loss, it can be, I mean, for kids, often like loss of a close friendship that, you know, they were really close to somebody, now they're not. It might be families um, relocating somewhere, leaving their community, their culture, or it might just be across, you know, the city um, to a new neighborhood. It might be that a beloved teacher is no longer at the school. Parents separate. There's so many different losses that we experience, and many of which often go unacknowledged. Okay. So with that in mind, our focus is mostly on illness-related loss and uh, and potential loss, so that what happens before, so I guess a series of losses probably mm -hmm. happens around when, when there's illness involved, um, and that may or may not end in death. So how did you get into this? What was it that yeah, drove you to look further? You know, it's a great question. And I think for me, um, really, it started, I was an 11-year-old kid. My aunt died of cancer. Her kids were 5 and 10. And I was aware that her kids had never been told that she had cancer. She had cancer from, she was actually diagnosed when she was eight months pregnant with her second child. And she was a nurse herself actually. And my interpretation um, is that, you know, she just went into this like fierce, very loving, but sort of fierce protective mode of her kids and never told them she had cancer, never told them she was going to die. And I was on the periphery somewhat, but I do remember thinking to myself, like, I don't have a clue how to do this, but I'm pretty sure this is not, um, you know, with the best sort of outcomes for my cousins in terms of the implications of them not knowing any of this was going down. And she died and the kids didn't go to the funerals. And, and then we as a family proceeded not to talk about her. We'd sort of like avoid talking about her for this fear of upsetting any of the people in the room, right, including my grandmother. Um, and I think my grandmother was actually the one exception to that. She really still tried to talk about her her daughter. Um, and, and that's where I just I started reading all kinds of death and dying books through my teenage years and just had this profound sense of there's got to be a different way 
to do this, um, which really led me down the path of becoming a nurse. And I went straight into oncology nursing myself, mostly pediatric oncology, and really was struck by the number of times where either a kid would ask me if they were dying when their parent was out of the room for 33 seconds. Or I think of one set of parents who turned to me in the night and they said, you know, we haven't even had a chance to tell our parents that their granddaughter's dying yet. And I realized that I felt so ill-equipped for how to have these conversations, especially the ones about death and dying. Uh, and I think for a long time, Pat, I thought like, I must've missed this course. Like I just, but everybody else around me was equipped. And, and I eventually did some work in adult palliative care too, at Princess Margaret Hospital, um, and realized like, actually, I feel like we're all very ill-equipped, whether it's the parent who has cancer or is dying or the child. Um, and that really combined my professional and my personal lived experience um, really developed into a huge passion for, okay, how do we do this differently? And how do we make education available professionally, but also like to families who are figuring out at the hardest time of life, how to do this with their kids? Because I became a very aware that often the healthcare system was not providing that guidance. Yes. And, and unfortunately, that's still true to a large extent. Mm -hmm. um, so this is, um, you know, a question that's probably hard to answer, but what is what is the biggest barrier, do you think, that mm -hmm. we have as nurses? We'll focus first on nurses. Um, in talking about this, like, what is it that happens that we can't we're we're fearful or we don't want to tread in those spaces. I think the reality is most nurses and I'd say healthcare providers across the board receive no training in how to do this. Right? And we're living in a society where I don't think it's too harsh to say we're quite a death phobic, grief illiterate society. And so if you're not receiving training and you're living in a society that already struggles with issues around our mortality and everything, um, it's just a pretty difficult combination in terms of now you're supported. There's a family who's devastated. All of their instincts might be we're not talking to the kids about this. And so to enter into that space when you're feeling ill-equipped, you haven't received education yourself it stirs up all kinds of feelings. I think the barriers are huge, which is which is why for me, the education piece um, is so important. You know, we can't totally unravel our angst about, you know, our mortality and, you know, all of those pieces, but we certainly can make sure people feel more well-equipped and even aware. I mean, unlike when my aunt was dying, I mean, this was the 80s, now, the piece to me that's very sad is we actually have a strong body of literature. This is not an unresearched area. There's a strong body of literature that is very clear that despite all the differences that can happen in an individual's grief process, that the overwhelmingly helpful thing is for kids to be told the truth. If somebody in their life or themselves has a serious illness or is dying or has died. But that information has not made it to the front lines of healthcare or education, our community services. And so when families are experiencing this, often they're not being given any guidance on the fact that actually 
it could benefit their kids, even though it's a hard conversation, but to have an honest one. And that's going to reinforce the trust for the kids that will actually bring down anxiety, which doesn't seem logical for most people. I'm going to have this really hard conversation with my kid about the fact that grandpa's die might die from his illness. Um, and that having that open communication could actually make less anxiety for my child. Right. But that's not a logical thought process. And so most people feel they're really left to their instincts, which often for very loving reasons, as was the situation from my aunt, um, that I need to protect my child. And so I'm going to do that by withholding information as long as possible. And unfortunately, that makes a child's grief process even more difficult. Yes. And I suppose embedded in that is a desire not to harm. So we never want to make things worse. And so I would expect that some people might think there's an age involved when you say, you know, we're not talking to them because they're not old enough. And what is old enough to have a conversation about illness, potential or actual loss? This is where my general guidance is there's, you know, there isn't an age, you know, there's never a too young. And so, you know, even if you're you have an 18 month old, a two year old, of course, they're not going to understand all of the language. Um, but we can certainly break it down and explain that, you know, daddy's got something in his body, it's named cancer, right? This is not your fault. We always want to make sure kids understand this is not their fault. They didn't cause it. They're very egocentric thinkers. I can write a book, Pat, about all the things kids have told me about how they caused the illness or the death in their family, right? And so this is where even the youngest of kids, we want to give them basic information um, about it and let them know, you know, if mom's not walking into school anymore, it's not because she doesn't want to. It's because she has ALS or, you know, my daughter was three when my dad died of PSP, which is a very rare Parkinsonian condition. I mean, we barely understood what it was, but we still use the language of PSP. That's what's causing Papa's body not to work properly anymore. Yes, um, that reminds me, uh, my my nephew uh, had a diagnosis of a uh, severe cancer. Uh, he's doing very well. But it was in his bones and he told his young son that it was a, a poison, like a cancer, but like a poison in his body. And so he made up a story to tell people that his, his dad had been bitten by a snake and right. that, that, you know, that put poison in. So this was his way yes. and, uh, of, of uh, figuring out and coping with it. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the thing. I mean, kids have such vivid imaginations. And if we're not giving them sort of the factual information, even when that's like, we don't know what caused this, but we know that cancer is not your fault. And, and I go so far as using Play-Doh or Lego to make cancer cells. The more concrete we can make it, the better. Because when we leave big gaps for kids, they're going to use their imagination to fill that in, whether it was a snake or the kid who told me for sure mom got mouth cancer because she yelled at him to clean up his room so much, right? And, and that's where I just really encourage opening up the conversation at any age using, like, we don't want to just say mommy's sick, mommy's sick, because two, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, like, sickness spreads across, and especially with uh, coming through COVID as well, like what they know of sickness is it's very contagious, 
right? So being able to explain, but you will not catch cancer from mommy. You can hug her. You can kiss her. You did not cause it. These are all really important pieces to enforce for kids. And and really, one of the things I find myself encouraging families to do the most is just cultivate an environment where kids' questions are welcomed, right? Where you could invite any questions. I think of when my daughter was two and good friends of ours, their three-year-old was dying from a brain tumor. And I explained, I explained, you know, Stella has a tumor in her head. It's called a brain tumor. Um, She didn't have a context for tumor, but I explained like it causes her body to stop working properly and eventually her body will die. And her, her thought process, she said to me, well, we will go to the grocery store and we will get Stella a new brain. And so (laughs) I had to explain, like, you can't be prepared for everything a kid might nail you with, right? You mean it with honesty? I had to explain, I wish we could get new brains when somebody has a brain tumor, but unfortunately that can't happen. You know, and, and sometimes our answer is, I don't know. I wonder about that too. And it's okay not to have the answers. And I think that that's another barrier for people, whether we're supporting adults as healthcare providers in these conversations or families directly, often people are worried about what if I don't have the answer? And I think if you don't have an answer to one of the questions, you've done a great job at opening that conversation and creating a safe space for hard questions to be asked. It's okay not to have the answer. Let them know you'll come back. Or if you know it's one of those big existentials that none of us have the answer to, wonder together about it. Okay. And so when when you are having those conversations, what's your advice about the language that we use? Like, Let's say as health professionals. Yeah, my, my advice is really to call it death and dying, call cancer, cancer, call ALS, ALS, you know, explain what it means. But with this, I'm really from a cultural humility perspective, very conscious of the fact if I'm working with a family and they're like, well, we're not comfortable with that language, I'm going to find out what language are they using? Okay, maybe it's passed away. Can we make sure? Because that's a very abstract concept for little kids, right? Um, Can we make sure your child understands what passed away actually means. I I would say in my career of doing this for probably over 25 years now, I've had far more families, even when I worked as a palliative care nurse myself, say, thank you for being the one person here who's actually using the D word. Everybody else is tiptoeing around it, which makes communication confusing often for families. Um, But that's where my my general go-to is call it death, death and dying. The number of kids who I've worked with who have been told, well, we lost grandpa last night, jump up being convinced they're going to find grandpa because they lose things all the time and find them again, right? So again, well-intended usually, but completely misguided and throws kids for a loop. And so we want to call it died and we want to explain that what death is, is it's when, you know, the body, including the head, many kids think the body is the neck down. So I've learned the hard way and I'm like, okay, including the head um, stops working and will never work again. And, you know, I don't ever say um, mommy can't hear or see, or I don't want to negate the non-physical beliefs, but I really want especially with young kids that we're starting with the physical understanding of what death means in a very concrete way. If, you know, there's a dead chipmunk in the road to me, that's a teachable moment, right? Don't just like rush the kid by it. Like, oh, the chipmunk died. Body will never work again, right? His body doesn't feel anything. 
anymore. Its heart's not beating. It won't move and help them understand in less emotionally intense experiences for them. It's so interesting that that you're saying these things. I've often wondered about words like lost and passed and passed away because it's kind of code <laughs> for death. And I, I wonder if English is a second language for you, if that might be even harder yeah. to have those euphemisms. Mm. I, I think it can set people up for a lot of miscommunication. And, and I'm conscious of the fact that in some cultures, passed away is completely appropriate and may very much, I mean, my understanding of passed away is um, part of where it originated from when people were being stolen from their lives in Africa, sent to North America as slaves. And the belief system was that their spirit when they died would be passed back over the Atlantic um, and go home to Africa. And so there are some cultural contexts when when these um, words and phrases actually make sense. Um, but I'd say that for the majority of times when we're using them, it's not because that is an accurate description for the person in front of us. It's because we're trying to soften um, the language around it and saying death or dying feels too hard. And it really can, and that gets heightened if English isn't a first language, um, set the stage for a lot of miscommunication where people might not actually understand what's happening or that they're dying even, which is why for myself, I will often open these conversations, even with a parent. I'm wondering what your understanding of your illness is and starting there. And so wondering what your understanding is as a parent of the child's illness, but also you can be asking that of children. Absolutely. And so, I mean, often I'm starting with the parents and under asking their understanding, whether it's their own illness or their child's illness. Um, and certainly this is often my opener for kids too. Again, whether they have the illness themselves or someone in their world has an illness. I'm wondering, I find wondering a very soft, gentle way to sort of enter the conversation. I'm wondering what your understanding is of what's happening to your brother right now. Do they have the language to know what the disease is actually called? Um, do they understand that their brother's going to die if that's the situation? Um, and so just finding out what their understanding is, is a really great place to start. So if we can just set death aside for a minute and focus on uh, a child living with serious illness, are there uh, is there language to talk about that? I mean, we use serious it's serious um or even when you were talking about being sick and i'm thinking well lots of people are sick you know they're they've got a sore throat or they've um got the flu as you were saying have covid and so how do we know this sick is really serious sick uh that may cause death you know pat the, the principles are actually very similar whether we're talking to a child who has the illness themselves um or somebody else does right like we want to find out their understanding. Understand that, especially with kids, we're going to see a lot of their grief um, coming up in their behaviors, right? So they might not say they're having a really hard time with what's happening, or certainly might not say that they're experiencing grief, um, but you might see some big angry behaviors, worried behaviors, right? We want to validate that they have the right to have all the feelings 
and thoughts that they've got. Sometimes the behaviors aren't so great, right? If it's coming out and you're kicking your sister all the time, we might have to like weed those out. And, you know, the behavior kicking your sister isn't okay, but you have every right to feel that feeling behind the behavior that you're angry um, and, and really validating that for them. And, and we want to cultivate an opportunity where they can ask any of the questions. I never want to dump more information on a child than they're ready for, unless we're in a situation, and I've been in it a number of times, where mom could die in the next hour, right? So this is this last opportunity um, to be with mom with a note shared knowing of this is going to happen or to say the things that they might want to say. And so we're having that conversation now. But if we, which is part of the reason I'm always encouraging, there's also a never too early to start these conversations when there's a serious illness, because then you can let the child pace you more, right? So we might be saying to the child, listen, if you've ever got questions about your cancer, I mean, I'd call it exactly what it is. Um, I want you to know that you can ask me about this. Could we maybe identify some other people who you might feel safe asking questions to as well? Right? And then we're inviting the questions, um, but we're not in a situation where we're having to force more information than the child actually wants right then. Yes. And um, uh, to be your earlier point, it's the questions that are important and you don't have to know the answers. Absolutely. And I find that that's a big relief for families to be able to say that, you know what, if your child asks you a big question and you don't know the answer, you don't have to answer right now. Always thank them. Like, I like to thank kids. It's like, that's a great question, you know, and validate that question for them. Um, sometimes I've got some families and we do this in our family. We've got a question box, right? And so it's like, if I don't know the answer to that, or maybe I do, but it's like 8.30 right now, we're half an hour beyond bedtime. And this is not the time to open that conversation, but I'm going to write that question down. I'm going to put it in the question box. And I promise you, I'm going to come back to that tomorrow after school, right? If it's not something that's pressing and, you know, to do with the child safety or anyone else's right in that moment. Um, and, and that's where I encourage people to both professionals and families you know, when a child nails you with a really big question, there's some questions that we don't know the answer, but maybe the oncologist does, right? Maybe the homicide detective does, but there's some questions where kids are wondering about the big things that we wonder about too. I think of um, a nine-year-old who asked me once early in my career after her mom died, you know, the only thing, Andrea, my dad hasn't been able to answer for me is, does everything happen um, randomly? Or does everything happen for a reason? And essentially what I said to her is like, you're, you know, your dad's not holding out on you. He doesn't know the answer either. That question is such a great question. And I'm going to be honest because this was genuine for me. I wonder about that all the time too, right? Are things preordained or are these random things that are happening? You just happen to step off the curb at the wrong time, right? And so that's where we were just able to wonder about it together. And I could validate for her. It wasn't that the adults know the answer and we're just not telling her. She's wondering one of the big questions about life that so many of us are wondering about as well. Yes. Uh, thanks for raising that phrase because I think it's used commonly 
maybe in an appropriate way, maybe sometimes not. Uh, the idea, I often wonder if the idea behind it is that it is preordained and, um, you know, we just don't know it and that somehow if people have a belief system that is a soothing thing to them, you know, then it, then it's helpful. But if you don't, well, there is a reason you stepped off the curb, but it's not because somebody planned for you to do that. And and I think, you know, it really depends on the context when, when that gets used. <laughs> and that's where I encourage families, like, you know, just wonder with kids about their thoughts and beliefs around this. Like, we don't have to know all of those answers. Um, but often kids are wondering many of the same existential questions we are. Um, and, and it's not our job to have to answer them all, but just create safe spaces to wonder with them. And then there's the pieces that actually we can clarify these misconceptions. Like, no, a snake didn't actually bite your nephew's dad, right? And um, no, your mom didn't actually get cancer because she was yelling at you to clean up your room or because the interpretation being like, I left my room so messy. If I had cleaned it, she wouldn't have gotten cancer. And that's where for me, you know, one of the things that's sad about us not entering into more of these conversations with kids is we most of the time cannot stop that person from having the illness that they have, or, you know, that person from dying, if that's the situation that's unfolding. Um, but what we can do is shape the story around it. And there's a big difference for a kid who's devastated because mom ha- is dying, um, which is hard enough, but you add a layer on for the kid who thinks they're responsible for mom's death. That is a huge burden for a child to bear. And it's not even an accurate one. And and that's something a child could grow up feeling responsible for if nobody's entering into a space of just, again, I wonder what your understanding is. I wonder, quite often I'll say to kids, um, but a parent can say this as well. You know, I, I've worked with a lot of kids who thought maybe they were responsible in some way for the illness or for the death that's happened in their life. And I'm just wondering if you ever thought maybe something you did had caused it. I never wait, Pat, for kids to actually bring that up to me. I know enough kids who have no intention of telling the adults around them that they feel responsible for what's happening. It's just a standard of practice for me to either wonder that directly with a child who's grieving, or if I never even meet the child, encouraging the family to do so. So I want to pick up on a couple of things. One is something you alluded to earlier, and that was about, um, you know, families might have a different idea about what children should be told than you do as the nurse or health professional. How can we uh, resolve this uh, in a way that we're meeting the child's needs and the, and the parents, I guess, but and respecting their preferences, but also, you know, giving the care that we understand is actually healthier for the child. Yeah, I mean, this is a great question. It's I teach a five-day program at Sick Kids in Children's Grief and Bereavement, and there are a lot of questions about this. Um, and and it can be a st- distressing experience. Um, I'd say, especially for people who've now done all this training on the topic um, and are you know sort of entrenched in sort of best practice around it, and then maybe encountering families where, of course, that resistance is still going to be there. Right? And that's where I think you know it's not our job as supporters to change how a family's doing this. I really feel that our job is to make sure families are making informed decisions about how they're doing this. 
So if I'm working with a family and there's resistance, like I'm going to sort of like peel back a few of those layers. I'm going to dig a bit under. I'm wondering what your worry is if your child were to know about their illness or if their child, your child were to know that dad might die from his cancer, right? And so I'm often looking at what is the worry behind this? Sometimes it's like, well, they might die earlier. I think that their anxiety is going to go up. They'll be more worried. Well, we can talk about, again, we've got a strong body of literature that also shows, and this is not going to be intuitive to most families, that actually open communication tends to decrease anxiety in families and increase trust, right? And so that I find is a big, uh, you get a lot of buy-in where families are like, oh, okay, that's really good to know. Sometimes I'll say to families, I'm wondering, like, would it be helpful for you to just know about some of the literature in this area? There's a great New York Times article that came out a couple of years ago now, and it does, it's just very quick read, but it does an overview of two in-depth lit searches, one looking at best practice for when a child has a serious illness or is dying themselves and one for a child if a child has somebody else dying in their life or with a serious illness both are very conclusive that being open and honest about it is the best approach right but even in situations where the family's like nope 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 I'm not going to talk to them about it as long as they've made an informed decision and somebody has shared why they're suggesting a practice of, you know, being honest and inclusive of their child. It's not a failure on the part of the healthcare provider, right? To not be able to shift how they're doing that. For me, the biggest concern is that right now, so many families are operating purely off gut instinct. They, they're not making informed decisions. Nobody has entered into that uncomfortable space of having a conversation about actually I'm wondering if you need some guidance on how to support your children and what to tell your children, right? I'm I'm wondering, um, you know, if it would be helpful to know what some of the literature in this area says. I'm wondering if you'd like to know why I'm advising that you're honest with your kids. And, and for me as a grief therapist, I now tend to, you know, I keep an eye on the families where I know the kids weren't informed beforehand. You know, we might have some more complicated grief processes after. And that's where, you know, on the front ends of healthcare and everything too, front lines, I'd really just sort of earmark some of those families that after the person dies, they might, those children might need an increased amount of support. So if there are community resources, I want to make sure the families are aware of that as well. So how would your approach differ or not when a situation is acute? So versus something prolonged that, you know, you almost ease into and live with a reality. But when there's a sudden change. And, and that's the thing. I mean, you don't have as much wiggle room in terms of the conversations and, you know, setting the tone and then letting children come with their questions. Um, it might be that there's just been a heart attack or there's just been a traffic accident. Um, and, you know, the general philosophy is the same of, you know, ideally, if possible, I want the, the adults closest to the kids to be the ones to give them that information. And when I use the language of family, I'm really speaking to anybody who's raising a child. This could be grandma. This could be foster dad. You know, if there is a surviving direct caregiver, a parent, um, I want ideally for them to be involved or at least to be there, even if a healthcare provider might have to give that information, right? And, and then give the information. It doesn't mean going into all of the details, but it might be, unfortunately, you know, there was an accident um, and your mom was seriously injured. 
And in the course of that same conversation, we're going to let them know that mom has died, if that's what the situation was, right? We're going to use the D word, not we lost your mom, or we just couldn't save her. Like we're actually going to need to say your mom has died. And then there's parts of it. And I actually think, Pat, that this is quite often the more challenging piece than how to have these conversations is bearing witness to the sorrow of that child, right? Like this is not a fix-it proposition. And that's where even when families come to me and they're like, okay, can I record what you're saying or write down what you're saying? I need a script for how to talk to the kids. I prepare them like, sure, we can go through all of this, but I also want to prepare you that the more challenging piece is not going to be having the conversation. It's going to be bearing witness to your child's sorrow. That's incredibly painful and hard to do. And I want to remind you, it's not your job to fix it, whether you're the professional supporter or family. Um, I want you just to hold them in that. Be with them. Stay in the room with them. Sometimes I think as healthcare providers, we're too quick to be like, okay, I'm going to leave you to be alone right now. I really, as a nurse, changed. And this was, I got feedback from a few people who said, like, we actually needed our nurse or social worker or physician to stay there with us, right? But my mom died and then everybody retreated. And so I really came to a place in my practice of asking people, would you like me to stay with you right now? Would you like to have some time alone? And not making assumptions about that. And and that's difficult to be there because again, this is where it's not about information anymore. It's about bearing witness and trusting our presence to be enough. How beautiful is that phrase? Your presence is enough. So I wanted focus on that bearing witness for a minute. Obviously, as a family member or parent, that's beyond painful. As uh, uh, someone, uh, Jane, I think it's Jane George, a uh, uh, nurse researcher, I think in suffering, talks about the unspeakable and, and this kind of feeling that comes up when when the sorrow is intense and, and bearing witness is very difficult. As a nurse, you're also bearing witness. And have borne witness many times over. Uh, I'm wondering how people might be best to cope with that, or how can you speak to that a little bit? Because you're really saying, as a resource, then we also need some sort of nourishment to be able to continue to do the work. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's important just to sort of recognize our humanity in doing this work. And of course, it's going to touch us, there's no way for it not to. I think that, um, you know, I'm actually quite fascinated at some of the research that's coming out right now um, that really seems to be indicating that there's a big difference between operating from a place of empathy, which even when I think back to being in high school, being told like empathy is being put, putting yourself into somebody else's shoes, right? So you're kind of, you're feeling what they're feeling and you're trying to associate with them and identify with them that way. Um, and I think that a lot of us have ta- been taught about the incredible importance of being empathetic and being empathetic over sympathetic. Like nobody wants to be on the receiving end of sympathy. But now what seems to be coming out that is, you know, empathy is also when we're doing it a lot, it's leading to people really getting depleted, right? And And in fact, compassion is the place to be operating from. And that, and it's interesting because there's MRI studies and stuff that I I cannot talk about the details because I don't totally understand it myself, but showing compassion and empathy, totally lighting up in different parts of the brain, 
And that compassion is in fact nourishing. And it's not that our pain pathways are lighting up as we're supporting somebody. It's actually quite enlivening. And so I don't know how to exactly be able to teach people how to go from a place of operating from empathy to compassion, but compassion is coming from a place of worldly concern, but not taking it all on, right? And and that's where um, there's a lot of Buddhist teachings and everything else about, you know, how to be compassionate. But I think this is important. And there's actually some suggestions in healthcare that perhaps this whole reference we've been making to compassion fatigue is entirely a misnomer. That in fact, what is happening to so many of us is empathy fatigue. And if people were truly operating from a place of compassion, it's not the job to take on the pain of the person that I'm supporting, but certainly to bear witness and be present for it, that people wouldn't be experiencing fatigue in the way that is often happening. You know, and I think it's an, it's important to be able to identify the things in our life that refill our well, right? And this might not be the typical, I think for a long time, I was like, okay, I've got to make sure I'm really exercising um, on a regular basis and I need to have a meditation practice and all these things. And I've come to sort of realize like, that's probably not realistic, any of that. So now I'm like, I got to walk around the block at least once a day or like whatever it is. But I do think, and I have come to learn in order to be able to do work of such intensity over long periods of time, it's important that we're nourishing ourselves. And for me, what that looks like is I've got a list, like what are my favorite things to do? I'm obsessed with raising butterflies in the summer month. I just released my last one this week. Um, you know, my my pets, being able to read books is really important to me. Um, and and just since New Year's, when I sent my attention, I was like, because I, I have this like ever increasing pile of books on my bedside table that I'd never get to. I'm like, even three pages a day, right? And I really encourage people doing this work professionally. Like, what is your list? What are the things that nourish you? Even if it's just little baby steps, how can you integrate that into your life in some ways? And I'd say, Pat, that's very parallel to a lot of the work I do with people who are grieving too, right? Like grief is tough work. Whether you're four years old or 84 years old, it's exhausting. It asks so much of us. Many people say to me, I had no idea it could be this hard. And, And that's where I'll sometimes be encouraging people like we need to take breaks from our grief in order to put time into our grief? Are you able to spend a bit of time doing some of those things that will refill your well? The beauty of the way kids grieve is they're so much better at being able to really do the joy and the sorrow. I'm devastated one moment and then even still at mom's funeral, I'm running around playing with my cousins having the time of my life. Right. Whereas adults tend to not transition so fast. We call it puddle jumping in kids. They'll be in the trenches of their grief and then they're having so much fun. And it doesn't mean a child playing and having fun isn't grieving, but they can make room for both. They don't cancel each other out. Adults have a tougher time with that. And so often I find I have to do more encouragement with adults than I ever do with the kids in my practice of actually making time and giving permission to do some of the things in your life that refills your well and can give you the energy that you need in order to be able to do this grief as well. I'm glad you're bringing these things up. I I think grief is exhausting, and it is not relieved by going and having a sleep. (laughs) And uh, understanding that from a nursing perspective, that this is what's happening to 
patients and families is important too. And of course, the same things can happen to us. And so, you know, one of the things I'm thinking is when when we are also experiencing that, it's very hard for us to have the uh, energy to be able to enter into those spaces. And that doesn't feel good either. What do you find the most challenging to be in in all of the work that you do around this? I think one of the most challenging parts of working and supporting with people who are grieving, whether, again, this is the exhausted healthcare provider or the family member who's, you know, experiencing grief. And sometimes that's the same person, right? They're supporting other people and they're living it at the same time. I find the most challenging part uh, in our society being helping people see that there's utility in doing grief that it will actually serve them well, right? Like we're such a logic dominant society where um, it just doesn't make sense to people so often and understandably so, you know, what's the point? What's the point in allowing myself to feel all these feelings or think all these thoughts? It doesn't make bring my son back. It doesn't make the illness go away. And ultimately my job, and I this is really true of everyone on our team, is to help people see that there is a point and that as humans, we are actually designed to be able to withstand huge amounts of suffering, often more than we give ourselves credit for. And that making space, just like we need to take breaks from our grief sometimes, um, you know, there's some people that I'm actually encouraging the opposite, that we might need to make some time to go into your grief right? And allow yourself to feel all the feelings and think all the thoughts and the sorrow and the yearning and the I wishes and, you know, grieving the unlived life that you didn't get with that person and all of those pieces. And that's where a child, it's a tough sell to convince people that actually it's going to serve them well to allow themselves to do this. And that's where, you know, doing, I guess, 15, more plus years of grief therapy work now too, I can really see a difference in the people who um, do make space for their grief and have figured out ways to not only make space for their grief, but take care of it and integrate it into their life. And in doing so, um, you know, there's a lot of growth that can happen around that as well. But it's, it's really common for, you know, people just not to see the utility in doing it. So you have in our in our talk today, there's been a few times where you used certain terms. And I want to draw your attention to a couple of terms. I, I'm not sure you've used these ones, but you know, that are out there in the um atmosphere that people often draw on. So one is around um people being in denial or uh closure. So I think about you know, grief and death and, you know, say closure. Any comments about the, I guess, the ideas behind those and our use of those words? Yeah, you know, I'd say I'm cautious with both of those words. Denial, um, it tends to be very entrenched in the sort of Kubler-Ross five-stage model of grief, which was really never meant to apply to people's grief processes other than the person who was dying themselves. And it's probably a whole conversation for another day. But, you know, I I think that the reality is that there's a lot of people who have a very neat, tidy stage model in their mind as to what grief should look like. And it leads them astray. And I would say, 
I would go so far as to say, I find it leads a lot of people to thinking that they're failing their grief process because they don't land at acceptance. Sure, they might experience denial and anger and acceptance. All these things might fluctuate. That can very much be part of a healthy grief process. But I caution people because I think a lot of people also interpret acceptance and, and closure as being connected as well. And I think closure can at times be elusive. I've seen a lot of grief process, healthy grief processes where maybe there isn't closure. I think sometimes people feel like, well, we need to have the funeral and then we'll have closure. And I'm a huge proponent of rituals around grief and having ceremony. And if we can't be together, whether it's because of COVID or grandma's overseas or whatever the situation is, finding ways of still doing ceremony and ritual as containers for experiencing grief in community and safe ways. But I do caution people that, you know, they might not receive the closure that they're thinking they're going to get. And that, you know, even if they never feel a sense of closure, that's okay. Ultimately, one of the things that really is on my radar is ensuring that what people do feel is that the person who has died, if that's the situation, will always be an important part of their life. And that this is not about breaking the bond with them. I mean, the Freudian idea of, you know, decathecting and everything. That's not what this is about. I still come across psychiatrists who are quoting Freud in terms of a, a healthy grief process and really leading people astray. It's not about breaking those bonds. It's about how do we stay connected to a person? How do we continue to have a, a relationship with a person even though they've died? And some people may experience this sense of closure. Certainly, you know, maybe we didn't have a body and now when we've found one, if we find one, but, or, and are able to have a ceremony, sure, there might be some sense of closure. Um, and absolutely, we want that if we can. But I'd also say there's a lot of people who maybe thought they would ex receive or experience closure and they don't. And it doesn't mean that you can't still have a healthy grief process and allowing for, at times, denial, right? And there's this great, you know, dual process model of grief and bereavement where we fluctuate between the processing and all the feelings and maybe denying it, everything else, relocating those bonds, and then being far more sort of future oriented, like how am I putting my life back together? What is it going to look like? Will I be in love again? Will I have other children? Whatever that is. It's natural that we're going to fluctuate between the two. And I think it's important. This comes back to the grief literacy piece is just sort of expanding people's understanding of what grief actually looks like. Even a really healthy grief process can be incredibly messy and far more intense than people were anticipating and they may find times where they're surprised by the fact that they're actually laughing again or that they're feeling joy, which in the early days felt questionable whether that would ever even happen for them again. In some ways, Pat, it's an act of surrender. Most people, after what I call a grief burst, you know, nobody said to me, oh, yeah, I skipped out of that. I mean, sometimes kids do, but adults don't usually say that. But a lot of times people will say, even teenagers, like, it felt like there was a release. Right? It just felt like a bit of a weight has been lifted once they've actually found some ways of expressing their grief, whatever that looks like for them. That's so helpful. You know, in healthcare, we do have these models entrenched in our heads around, mostly around efficiency, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so that rationalistic uh, idea that, and linear, that you will go through this and it ends. And so 
we do judge sometimes ourselves and others when we think we're not moving in those linear ways. Uh, But I think what I'm hearing you say is that it's messy and that's that's what we should be expecting, the complexity of it. There will be unanticipated things that arise in that, but and that's okay too. Yeah. So uh, I guess we need, as you're kind of saying, we need to be rethinking what it is we're expecting of people. Absolutely. And can denial be healthy then sometimes? You know what? Sometimes it can. You know, I think there's like no absolutes when it comes to grief is my experience. But that's where I think too, I, you know, I'm cautious because all too often what I have found is sometimes we may assume it's denial. And in fact, the communication hasn't been very clear, right? Or the D word was never actually used. And so the person really just doesn't understand. I love Atul Gawande's work and being mortal, his book and his speaking about how like collectively he and his parents had like 150 years of medical experience behind them more or less. And they didn't know what the oncologist in their situation was saying of their dad, his dad's prognosis. And I, I do find that that's where, you know, in more recent years, there's the serious illness conversation guide connect place out in BC has also adapted it. So there's a version specifically for parents who have a child who's seriously ill I think it's incredibly important that we are leaning into those tools that take some of the guesswork away. It's a lot of the language we talked about today, right? I'm wondering what your understanding is of your child's illness to ensure that the the person we are supporting has as much information as they want to have, right? And and we're not making assumptions right now that this is denial um, when actually maybe there's a huge amount of miscommunication. To your point around uh, about information, we do have uh, this need that we create in the system and in ourselves about giving information to people. That's part of what we do. And, And then when we do that, we've fulfilled our role or we've gone we've done gone a long way in in fulfilling our role. I'm hearing you challenge that a little bit, say that we need to be thoughtful about what people can actually take in. Physiologically, do you have any understanding about what happens? Can we process information when we are, let's say, get sudden news that's distressing or we're grieving. Any any comments about that? Absolutely. We have to be very careful and cautious around that. And I think from, you know, a trauma-informed perspective and everything, of course, there's like, there's real limitations into what people can hear after they've been told that their child has cancer or there's been this car accident, right? And, and that's why I think that, you know, we want to be conscious that, Um, We are hopefully designing systems and programs where we can know that they probably didn't absorb a lot of what was being said. It's why people come to me all the time and they're like, can I take notes? Do you have a tip sheet, something that you can give me that I can come back to? I think it's incredibly important, even in ERs, that um, there's the ability for somebody, a social worker, a chaplain, whoever it is, following up with families afterwards, knowing that they may have questions two days or two years down the road that they didn't have then, right? And not that it's realistic to be like, we're going to follow up for two years, but certainly giving contact information, letting them know if at any point they need 
to have some more information, like this is who they can contact. Right. So for sure, when people are getting big news, you know, especially unexpected news, but I'd say big news across the board, there's going to be limits to how much they can take in. I really advocate when people are navigating the health system and everything else, like if you can bring someone with you who can take notes for you, right? Knowing that there's going to be limitations to how much you can absorb and retain and everything else, um, that can be incredibly helpful. And, you know, it's just like when we talk about supporting kids and sharing with them about, you know, some serious grief situation in the family, repetition, 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 right? And being able to create those environments where they can come back. They're only going to absorb so much and they're often going to have to have it reinforced. And that's going to be very true of supporting grieving adults who are trying to integrate big news into their lives as well. Thank you. Um, I think we're going to, I could just talk with you forever. You're just such an amazing resource. And I know that you have uh, resources that are, are available to people online. Um, do you want to just describe what some of those are as we as we come to a close today yeah. so that anybody might want to follow up? For sure. I mean, on our website, we've chose www.andreawarnick.com. So Warnick being W-A-R-N-I-C-K. Um, we've amalgamated sort of our favorite brief resources and tried not to over-resource people. So it's just like these are sort of our favorite go-tos. Um, kidsgrief.ca is a wonderful resource from Canadian Virtual Hospice, um, video-based and text-based that sort of walk through how to talk to kids about this. They've also got, are about, you know, serious illness, death, suicide, however it happens. Um, mygrief.ca is another incredible virtual hospice resource as well. Our team and virtual hospice together does a monthly Q&A where it's literally just my myself and the co-owner of my practice, who's also a grief therapist, answering any questions online about supporting a grieving child. You could be auntie, you could be their teacher, you could be a nurse supporting them. Um, it's people just coming and asking. It's totally free. How do I support a grieving child? Um, and then we've also got, of course, like we've got a team of 40 therapists, all regulated therapists, um, and a bit of a sliding scale program too. I'd say most people use extended health benefits to access us. I realize that that's not available to everyone. So we try to do whatever we can and, and really work hard for people who contact us, um, you know, even if they're not able to do the individual therapy to be able to connect them with resources in their community as well. Some, some communities are much better resourced than others. Thank you so much, Andrea. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me, Pat, and for really drawing light to this incredibly important and often overlooked topic. Thanks for listening. You can reach me or information about this episode on our website, www.radicalnursetalk.com. The producer editor of this podcast is Jeremy Ramos Foley, social media by Amy Strachan. And if you'd like to support the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. Join me next week for more Radical Nurse Talk. In the meantime, have a radical conversation in your practice. It can change lives.